You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 618, the radio doesn't want Kylie and M&M doesn't like Republicans, the changing nature of on-the-road behaviour and why television is cancelling successful shows. That's all coming up after War and Low Rider. Experience of uh, driving a low rider myself a year or two ago, mm. and my, but my exhaust fell off. Oh dear! Um, yeah, it wasn't as enjoyable as this though. Uh, it was hey, a absolutely. low rider for a day or two, but uh, yeah, Dorian Cope posted a, a clip of this on social media this week, and it reminded me what a thrilling record it is. Number twelve in the UK, number seven on Billboard from the uh, summer of 1975, War and Low Rider. I was having a um I was having a chat with someone this weekend about songs that you first came across on adverts that actually turn out to be really rather good. Um <laughs> we we were listening to EVA by Jean-Jacques Perry and I said that I first came across it in the days before you could look songs were on the internet and it took some effort to track down what things were. It was on a LucasAid advert that involved <laughs> kind of people at odd angles. And I first came across this, which I've always really liked. And I love this record. Mm. I play it a lot in live sets now. It's great. It was to the tune of sort of the the, the growling tune was um, it was on a Marmite advert and the oh. tune ground my mate Marmite. And uh, yeah, I, and that that's where I first came across this. In the same way as I first came across The Fall, rather unlikely, used on a car advert for cars <laughs> playing hide and seek in skips. Touch sensitive was the tune. And that's how I first came across them. So there's a lot to be said for <laughs> finding music on adverts continuity on bbc or like anything music is everywhere but i do miss i do part of me misses the days where you'd hear a song on an advert and 
you know, before even before Internet Fora, you would just have to try and find a way of tracking down what it was. You didn't have Spotify or SoundHound or or uh, what's the other one, a Shazam, things like that. So yes, a part of me will always be delighted that I managed to find out that the music from the Marmite advert was Lowrider by War. <laughs> Welcome to the Parish Council. It's episode 618. Mm. I'm, I'm Terence Stackham, and I believe she's been away for the weekend. So let's ask, can it be just a coincidence? Is she responsible for the Burning Man catastrophe in Nevada? We need to know Juliet Harris. Hello. Well, I'm not, although I must admit that we did giggle in our in our very comfortable bed in a converted barn in Wadhurst in Kent as we read about the misfortune of Burning Man people we did laugh chuckle and then have another cup of tea in bed so uh, so I you must say oh, okay. I wasn't there I wasn't pulling any strings I just found it funny sir T anyway hello <laughs> Kylie Minogue had a hit single here in the UK this summer. Padam, padam. She did. Um, we played it last week and we, declared it the song of the song, the song of the summer. Even song of the summer, we called it indeed. Uh, reached number eight in the UK here in the UK. Um, a top ten hit. Her first for thirteen years. Mm. It was quite a sizable hit around the world. It was. I, I, I was in Ireland um, two months ago and it was constantly played on the radio and in bars over there as well. Oh right, okay. But the producer, yeah, it was a big hit over there. The producer and the writer, though, aren't happy, Jules. They feel the mm. song is denied radio play over here in the UK. This is what was said. We were trying to get it played on the radio, but Radio One and Capital were refusing to play it, essentially because she's an older woman, end of quote. But here's the thing. I think they're wrong and they're making it up, Jules. Why? Why do you think they're wrong? I know this is usually the bit where I have to say I had to give an argument. I need you to expand on this before I can go back, I think. Well, well, I can. I just think it's it's absolute nonsense to suggest, as Pete Rycroft and Ina Rawlson do, that there is some UK conspiracy to keep Kylie off the radio. When she's on form, there's no more radio-friendly artist than Kylie. But let's be honest, she hasn't... She hasn't released a banger for over a decade. She now mm. lives back in Australia, so her profile over here is lower. Thus, so the song made its way into the charts on its own merits rather than through some pluggers taking radio station producers out to lunch at the Woolsey. Um, they should all just sit back and enjoy Kylie's success. Well, and I think that's that's a very good argument. And actually, I think that then there's something you've got something there. The idea that you know it pluggers and it didn't come on. I think that I'm going to be very boring, Sertie, and so I think mm. I, I think you're partially right. Mm. I think that you're right, and I think that it's to be a, I think it's commendable and to be applauded that it was successful on its own merits rather than through pluggers. I think radio. I think Ready One and Capital was slow to catch on. That's what I would say. I think that it was quite obvious when it was getting a big online buzz early on from not mm. the usual suspects. I think. I think it was quite. It had an obviously large on online fan base, and I know that lots of things do, but I just think that they were a little bit slow. To and I think this is a good example actually of of old school, previous sort of giants of media struggling to catch on at what's going on online. There really seemed to be a huge disconnect here. So I think in that sense, they were slow to catch on. Also, I have some sympathy for the point they've made. That, um, And you might come back and say, well, he's had more hits in recent years. I Also, I didn't know this, Sati. David Guetta is 55 years old as well, the same age as Kylie. Did not know that. And uh, One hit yeah, wonder boy. Well, indeed, and he's getting, you know, playlisted. So I don't know. It seems it seems interesting that um, that, and also that I could see why they were cross. That you know, everyone is going on, you know, going mad online, and it gets put on the C list, and that really did seem to be. I don't know. Mm. I I think they could have, you know, it seemed very. It was going very TikTokable, and in the end, it was the public that kind of uh, that, that that adopted it. And I tell you what. 
Kylie is sensible enough to know that the LG, as my friend always says on X Factor, which block vote is going to win, the LGBT block vote or the 12-year-old girls block vote? Because they are the two block, they are two, the two unions of pop that seem to block vote against each other on X Factor. So Kylie knows where the LGBT union is and she knows how to get them on board. It's a great song. I love it. I think that, you know, I can see the argument you're making, but I think that radio was was, you know, if not correct to ignore it at first, I really think they should have caught on quicker, frankly. But anyway, yeah. I'm glad that the people spoke. No, you're absolutely right. The, the radio, um, particularly over here, I think they're more alert to this in the States. But over here, yes. they're still not catching on that music is breaking on um, TikTok, wherever, but particularly TikTok. Um, exactly. And, um, you know, that can send streams to the top of the charts before radio is even aware that uh, the, the song is is on absolutely. fire. So absolutely. I think right. it's it's slow now. So. Yeah. Also unhappy this week, um, Eminem, mm. who oh has dear. been, he's peeved, he's peeved, Jules, mm. um, because Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy has been borrowing Eminem's tracks on the campaign trail. In fact, footage of Ramaswamy rapping out a version of Lose Yourself at the Iowa State Fair oh, went viral. No, but the thing is, you see, it should be said, if you haven't seen it, it wasn't toe-curlingly embarrassing. Oh, um, God. Vivek Ramaswamy, he did a really good job of it. He really, he Goodness really me, did. Goodness me, that's concerning. <laughs> but always controversial, Jules. Should a musician be able to block other people from using their music? very interesting isn't it i found eminem and i think i've spoken about eminem on the podcast previously hmm. i found him to be very brave in his political views and i use that word deliberately do you remember um he came out against trump in 2020 hmm. and um did a sort of video last minute and things and you know and i thought that was a really brave thing to do because and and you could say well eminem's you know later on in career he's had success and money already yes okay fine but eminem is still a working artist eminem is still having hits and eminem must know that a large chunk of his kind of blue collar fan base the you know eminem speaks to the rust belt he really does and to come out against trump in that way knowing that it would tick off a large element of his fan base i think was a really decent and brave thing to do so i have time for eminem politically i think he does good things i'm concerned by the rise of, of vivek um i've heard things about him it's very much a sort of a there's a demagogueness about it that I find concerning. Um, you know, I I like Eminem and his his sort of you know his his decency. I it, like you say it's always a vexatious issue. Back in the days when I was doing stand up to tune, these are very dim and distant hmm. days. I used to have a I remember doing, it, but it was so dim and distant that I had a routine around the result of the 2010 election. So that's how long <laughs> ago I've been doing it. How long I was doing it in 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 Britain, the British uh, general election 2010 and um i'd i'd um, you know remarked on sort of events including complaints from keen that um the conservatives had used their music as part of the election campaign they'd used somewhere only we know i think and they were complaining that david cameron used it and i said fair play to keen if i was in keen i wouldn't want my my music played in public either so that was my <laughs> my uh, and that by the way that was genuinely a joke i really like Keen, but you know what i mean <laughs> so so there's so like you say a tale as old as time some of the more bizarre kind of things. I remember Massive Attack going very cross. That I can't remember which one it was now. It was either for Ian Duncan Smith or William Hague. The Tories had announced them onto him onto the the conference floor to do his speech with a man next door by the Massive Attack, which really does seem a most bizarre thing. I mean, ultimately, like you say, it's it's interesting. When I I made this song with a, a friend of mine, we recorded a track together some years ago, and because he does things properly, he said, okay, then I'm, I'd sell quite a lot of my music commercially, so I'd like us to have an agreement that we both sign at the beginning as to what we do and don't want it used for, and then I don't have to bother you every time, and we have ideas of what we want. And I said, okay, fine. He said, okay, so, you know, do you want it used for this or that? And we had to decide whether or not we want it used for political use. So it was really interesting to sit down and have that conversation. In the end, we decided it was no political party use at all because we had slightly different views. And we just, if you look, it's just best to say not mm. ultimately. But um, so so it's interesting because I can see musicians' point on this. There is the argument that once you put your 
work into the public domain and the rights are available for purchase unless you do what we did and think carefully at the beginning about what you do and don't want it to be licensed for there is always that risk and you know and if your work is in the public domain then it is in the public domain and is up you know people can like what they like but equally I do have sympathy for if your work interesting this is this is where work is being used to sell something isn't it really this mm-hmm. chap is using it to sell himself and if his sort of morals etc are not you know and, and his kind of beliefs are not aligned to the artist I do have sympathy with why artists uh, why artists have difficulties you know saying oh I don't I don't want to be aligned with this and if you are playing someone's music at a political rally say I think it is a reasonable conclusion to draw if I was a person that heard it because we all because I think most sophisticated people know most sort of people of the world know that you would have to get permission for rights to use something it's not an unfair assumption that the artist has given permission and is therefore approving of the people using the music so I do have sympathy with Eminem here I must say I know that obviously you know freedom of speech I suspect you might mention and you know there's sort of the idea that once you put your work out there in the public domain you to some extent lose control over it but I do have sympathy with it I would find it difficult yeah I mean I I will go along with your latter point really because I think Mm -hmm. so often performers want it all they're perfectly happy to sell out their back catalogue to hedge fund operators for millions and millions of dollars as they all seem to do these days um giving up and by the way, when they do do that, they give up all of their rights because yeah. then that you know we've we've already seen and heard you know Dylan and uh, the Beach Boys and whatever used in commercials that make you want to weep because they're so mm. inappropriate. But um, so but but then of course having sold out all those right uh, all the the um, catalogue filled mm. and given up their rights, they then whinge when the music isn't used in the context. They wish. I mean, the, the mm. law in America, I believe, over the use of recorded music in these sort of circumstances is rather complex. So Eminem in this con- in, in this situation is probably rather glad because Vivek Ramaswamy has rather graciously, I think, said he will voluntarily stop using the song. Mm. Um, but I, what, what I was thinking, Jules, the real winner of all this is, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy, because um, mm. it's raised his profile in a massive way that no campaign speeches uh, could ever no, have achieved. No, true. No, agreed. And actually, yes, like you say, to some point, to some extent, has Eminem falling into a trap here? Who knows? Frankly, who knows? Yeah, good point. Coming up next, are musicians finally changing their behaviour when they're on tour? That's right, after mm. Cher. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Thank you. 
came across a, a I think it was released in the last few years, a funk compilation. I had a version of what it is, rare funk, soul and grooves. I had a version that I bought online as MP3s, but though I found a sort of reduced vinyl version. So a shorter kind of, I think the, the, the MP3 one has got a hundred, hundred tracks on it. The vinyl one had less on it, but I found this in a shop fairly recently. And I obviously didn't have this song on the original, the version I got. I'd never heard this version by Cher. And I, I, there was enough on it that I thought looked really interesting. When I played it recently, I instantly fell in it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I love her delivery on this. I think it's fantastic. And I love the arrangement. Uh, it's a song that suits her voice and her kind of slightly swinging style of that era very well. And I played it live in a pub last weekend and it went down beautifully. So that was Cher. And for what it's worth, the uh, Buffalo Springfield number as ably covered by Cher words I never thought I'd say <laughs> I, can, I can't remember the album um, 3614 Jackson Highway uh, coming out it's an intriguing mm. listen because as you say it's largely covers and it, it was I think it was intended to sort of relaunch Cher in 1969 after some sort of rather fallow years um, it didn't work in the sense with the with the public it, it, it didn't chart at all mm. but Hearing Cher cover Walk on Gilded Splinters and Lay Lady Lay, it's mm. great fun. The album is just a great listen. Um, you know, it's not. I don't think it's been taken seriously. I don't think she's making some great you know, political mm. statement at the time of the Vietnam War. It's just uh, a, a really fun album that just didn't hit with the public at the time. A real shame. I agree. And I, I've since went on to Spotify to listen to the whole album because mm. I wanted to hear what it was like. And like you say, some really fun covers. A pity mm. it didn't do better. There was a, there was a piece in the Guardian last week that drew a parallel between the reaction to Lizzo's dancers accusing her of mm. bad behaviour and the dismal behaviour of the members of rock bands, which continued really right up to the Me Too mm. revelations and the modern fact, of course, that there are cameras everywhere ready to record misdeeds and people hungry to publish the result on social media, which in in recent times has complicated some pop musicians' careers mm. and ended uh, others, um, some quite rightly. It's arguable uh, that um, young people... Young people have changed in a generation or two. Many younger people now don't don't drink at all. And mm. there's far more awareness of the severe harm that harder drugs can do. So where are we now, Jules? Have we no longer got musicians who will drive a Rolls Royce into a swimming pool for our entertainment? Goodness me. And that's a beautiful way of putting it as well, frankly. And look, I think the point that you make regarding young people and their mm. different sort of behaviours is... Mm. Very well said, I think. I, I I'm inclined to agree that uh, that maybe um maybe that's where we are. I don't know. I like you say, young people generally seem to be much more um much more sort of controlled of themselves nowadays. And maybe perhaps this is a reflection as well of the um of the music business perhaps and how people have to and how difficult it is to get on in it with it now, as a result of which you know, people just end up having to sort of behave themselves better because you have to approach it in a much more professional way, I think. If we live in a world where, I can't remember the figures that we've used previously on the podcast, mm. but like so many tracks are released per day online, oh, aren't oh, they? Yeah, that yeah. There is an argument, oh, you've got to do something to stand out. I, you know, maybe if you behave badly, then that will give you headlines and a rock and roll allure. Could work the other way. We, you can't afford to pee people off anymore, can you? By, by you know, sort of behaving badly because in an increasingly financially straightened industry that is still recovering from COVID, will you be seen as too much of an insurance risk by a, by a tour sort of manager? Will you be seen as too much of a risk by a label who don't want to be tied up when they can just have a nice woman like Taylor Smith or Swift who doesn't drink very much who behaves very well? I think that might be a a factor in it equally it could be that pr are better at, um uh covering this up anymore and I, I like this quote in this article actually in the guardian hmm. best coast the band that i've heard of and like very much have a singer called bethany cosentino cosentino who was hmm. recently a solo artist i must check this stuff out this is an interesting point see what you think of this terence hmm. 
says that the election of Donald Trump in 2016, as well as the Me Too movement that you referenced at the beginning, forced a lot of people she knew to, and this is a quote, reckon with the idea that this machismo, toxic, masculine attitude has very much been applauded in a way that let men get away with anything. When she first began touring with Best Coast at 23, she felt that touring culture was still very much geared towards the hard partying lifestyle. I'm from America, where our culture is very much like you get wasted and you drink and you party, she says. There's a kind of joke people say every backstage is an open bar and it's true you get a rider and you get drink tickets and you can live this fantasy of what it would like to be a quote unquote rock star she talks about touring a summer camp for adults she said as she entered her early 30s she ran to take stock of the role drugs and alcohol it had in her life she said i started to acknowledge that maybe i did drink a little too much maybe i was abusing my prescription medications i wasn't taking care of myself it's really interesting there are a lot of big indie stars as well as her Waxahachie, I think we played on the pre- podcast previously, Florence Welch of Florence and the Machine, don't drink anymore. And there's a, an American tour manager who manages younger bands such as a Snail Mail, Bully, Boy Harsha, they've all had success in recent years. And she says she's seen a lot of people getting sober, going through crazy stuff in their lives that makes them rethink their choices and their like, like, like her, uh, sort of their not enough behaviour. I wonder if COVID has done for this as well, Terence. People had a lot of time to contemplate their lives during COVID when we weren't going around the world. And maybe some people have re-evaluated if they really want to live a life of drink and drugs and excess, which is ultimately what what sparks bad behaviour on tour, doesn't it, really? So people don't tend to blow TVs out of windows. It tends to be people that are a bit drunker and a bit more drugged. Maybe people have used the contemplative time just to think, well, you know, what's the point in doing this, really? Do I want to behave in this way? I don't know, but it could be that. I think that's uh, that would be a real positive. I was really taken mm. by a, a couple of those quotes um, that, that you gave us there, because having spent mm. oh, really, quite a large portion of my life working with bands, mm. I, I saw patterns emerge time and time again. Oh, you, you, you've been a likable bunch of boys. It was always males, by the way, never women that I mm, that really doing you know, awful things. Um they would embrace success initially with wild excitement. You know, delighted, I yes. guess, to get that the first gold disc. You know, give it to mum and dad and enjoy the exactly. world of it all. But so often, I think, influenced by hangers on and sometimes like uh, seeing it all roadies and record company people, mm. they're encouraged to enjoy in inverted commas that success by trying out drugs they hadn't heard of a year before and suddenly it seems to be the thing to 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 do to drink yourself into unconsciousness yeah exactly you you thought that was the thing you had to do and of course then before you know it you're you're i guess you know pete doherty in the fetal position on some bare floorboards clutching a bag of ketamine it all unravels very quickly quickly, and what's interesting as well and to to go back to my point about the economies of kind of touring there there are indie bands and this article here again quotes band who i quite like who are called coach party from the isle of Wight. i haven't heard much of their stuff but i like what i've heard um there's less time and money than ever which to actually party so jesse eastwood and guy page who are in this band have said that a need to tour well has dictated the way that they behave on the road they've said the lizzo situation does feel very unique now and the reaction to it online shows how much that lifestyle isn't tolerated or idolized anymore to perform the best we all know we have to keep on top form especially when people are playing are paying actual money to come out to our shows not to mention how tiring it already is to do this lifestyle sober there are so many bands out there you need to be on your best game to stand a chance of making it anywhere and again that speaks back to the point we say about so many so many songs being released online every day and this person says the coach party don't yet have the luxury of traveling with a team which means that as soon as we're off stage we're trying to get to the merch stand being shouted out to clear the stage and move the van making sure we've shown our faces and been extra right to the nice the right people all whilst knowing we have a 50 mile drive to the hotel he says that debaucherous trope touring tropes haven't died out but people take it as less of a shock if you decline a beer noting it's often fans who expect their favorite bands to party hard so i think that's really interesting and mm. and um this um someone um goes on i'm just trying to see see who it is it's being quoted at least larson the american tour manager quoted earlier also says about covid 
I feel like during COVID, being stripped of our livelihoods made people calm down a bit. I think that might translate into maintaining sanity on the road. You can't really get too crazy anymore. She said, you know, people still, people, there are still some nights where I'm almost surprised. Like, oh, we're back. But, and it's nowhere near the same as partying every night after the show. That's really interesting, isn't it? Um, that, uh, you know. Also, there's a rising lot of people in big touring crews are having to sign NDAs now as well. Gosh, gosh. Right, so it might well still be going on, but just not hearing about yes. it. I mean, if you forgive me, I'll just make just another uh, couple of quick things to say yeah, because it's just occurred to me, mm. um, you know, you're mentioning sort of Me Too and a, a lot of yeah. the women you quote there. I mean, one reason I'm... I'm cheered up by this piece in the Guardian, mm. alluding to you know rock and roll excesses being yes, over. Yes, exactly. Is the awful treatment of women that I witnessed. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, bands bands who said it was all going to be different with them behaved even worse than their predecessors, oh, and, and, and I saw it. And I just remember like appalling roadies at live gigs insisting that mm. young girls and inverted commas do them a favour before oh. they would take them through to the dressing room to oh, meet the band. It, it would be a great Revolting. thing if those days are yeah, genuinely over. Wouldn't it be? I, yeah, very much agree. Well put. Uh, there's more to come. Why mm. TV companies are cancelling successful series and a claim that serious television is gone forever. Oh. Hey, that's next after Wonderhorse. Europe and the UK over the next few weeks. Um, they say their influences are Joni Mitchell, Elliot Smith and Neil Young, which can be no bad thing at all, I think. Uh, this is from their debut mm. album, released in October 2022 last year, from the album Cub, Wonder Horse and Leader of the Pack. Very much like that. Thank you for introducing me to yet another snazzy new band, Sir T. 
Now, we, we live in peculiar times. We um, do. Premier League football clubs are selling young footballers with huge potential that have spent maybe 10, 15 mm. years at their club since they were six years old, simply because it's advantageous in taxation returns and Goodness enables me. them to comply with the financial fair play rules. And, right. and now we find similar vexing and grim situations in the world of television. You would think, Jules, that producing a top-rated show on say, uh, Disney Plus or Netflix, would be cause for celebration, but it seems just as likely that the show will be cancelled. Absolutely, and this is a very interesting opening paragraph from Stuart Heritage's article about it's in The Guardian. Two years ago, Nautilus was big news. A vast, expensive Disney Plus prequel to Jules Verne's 20,000 Years Under the Sea. Sounds very grand, doesn't it? Nautilus promised to tell the early story of Captain Nemo as he embarked on his epic submarine adventure, seeking revenge on his former captors, the East India Company. A colossal replica submarine was built. Several sound stages on Australia's Gold Coast were given over to it. Hundreds of crew members were hired alongside hundreds of extras. Filming took almost a year. The Queensland government claimed that the series would inject 96 million Australian dollars into the local economy. It looks certain to be a hit. An exciting new big-budget spectacle underpinned with contemporary themes based on a legendary piece of uh, intellectual property. Nautilus couldn't go wrong, except nobody is going to see Nautilus, because even though it's already been made, Disney Plus have decided not to stream it. Amazing. Um, You know, and he makes the point that people in the TV industry has got a long history of dropping show, previously announced shows for a variety of reasons. Pope Town, um, an animation that was due to be on the BBC in 2004, was canned after complaints from Catholics. Uh, the cops in 2017 oh, was Catholics. And no, the caps were, uh, were obviously some of my best friends, etc. Um, 2017, the cops were axed um, after reports of um, Louis C.K.'s uh, sexual misconduct oh, came to light. And this is uh, uh, in what is the most alarming yet entertaining sentence I've read in some years, Terence. And 2021's ultimate slip and slide was cancelled after the crew all came down with a highly infectious variant of explosive diarrhoea oh, that Lord. can be spread through tainted water. Just when you think, you know, that you've got you've got used to all possible risks in life, Satie, that then happens. Also, God, imagine being at the insurance company dealing with that claim. Imagine <laughs> being the contract lawyer thinking, why didn't we have a clause in this, et cetera, et cetera. It would so, be called the, the Imodium Clause. Oh, goodness me. Absolutely. Yes. Now that's now that's what I call, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So May, um, in May, Disney Plus announced this plan, a content removal plan. I need one of those to my house, Sir Terrence. It's very overly stocked with content at the moment. Designed to cut 1.5 billion US billion of US dollars worth of content, as you say substantially reducing the company's value, which means it has a lot less tax to pay. Also, go. the Spiderwix Chronicles completed and then axed. HBO Max are at this as well. Um, They cancelled the second season of feminist porn con- comedy Minx just as it was finishing production. Actually, stars have since bought it, so it will actually be, be seen. Mm. Um, AMC has been at this as well. Again, um, animated drama Pantheon and legal drama 61st Street for similar tax purchase purposes. It pulled the plug on something of the production. I feel sorry for the unfortunate people that made a US sitcom called Chad that was pulled hours before it was due to be on TBS in the US. And uh, there are shows being pulled off of streaming platforms as well. Westworld, which was enormously, I remember there was loads of money that was, if you find mm. the pun, sunk into that on uh, on on TV. As well, it's gone the same way as the flop film with Kevin Costner in it, in that it's been removed by <laughs> Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, Paramount Plus releasing release, uh, sort of removing Grease mm. spin-off Pink Ladies and the Twilight Zone being remade, and that also at the same time. You've got strikes going on as well. So the WGA and the SAG strikes are on. Several shows have shut down. Um, Night Court, season two of 1923. Emily in Paris, which has been quite successful. Severance, Stranger Things, all these big hit shows on mm. Netflix have been struck down. Um, and they make the point here, which is a good one. There was a writer's strike in 2008. You might remember this. The big shows like Heroes, which was a big do at the time, was was not was sort of disrupted. And um, I feel for poor old Michelle Ryan, 
who was briefly one of Hollywood's more unlikely stars, I think, as good as she is. She was in EastEnders for some years as, as Zoe Slater, Cat Slater's daughter. They had a shouty scene in a square that was put, repeated ad infinitum. She was rather unexpectedly signed up in a remake of The Bionic Woman over in America. And they did one season. And the writer's strike put pay to it by the time it was over they didn't pick it up again so it'd be interesting to see as i said it's not unreasonable to assume that some of this year's crop might not survive this this kind of impasse it'd be interesting to see what happens um What's um what Stuart Heritage says here, what's upsetting about this as subscribers is that we've come to see streaming platforms as bottomless archives for everything that's ever been made. The BBCs have loads of stuff on iPlayer that, you know, is 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 quite old. BBC Sounds have lots of stuff hanging around. The big expense of television comes from making a programme. Compared to that, the cost of hosting it on a website should be pretty low stream and it creates a lot of uncertainty as well if warner Bros. discovery going to get rid of westworld where does this stop city will someone dump game of thrones well we will not have succession mm. anymore and it seems very strange to me i mean disney claim they're working to find these things a new home like you say the tax the tax thing is depressing and it shows much like football is moving that way as well with the saudi arabia business that it seems increasingly like these sort of pastimes and interests and professions like sport and and television making these arts and pastimes are just simply being reduced to being on a balance sheet aren't they well, absolutely. I mean, we're all more and more in many types of interaction between us and them, mm. um, seen as consumer pawns rather than than customers. And this is ever more evident if you attend a football match, oh yeah, uh, a music event, or as you know, you've been showing us here, a television viewer. Your comfort or your opinion, they don't matter. But um, I do think this um, strike, uh, the the writers mm. and um, uh, the the SAG and the writers got yes, to that's right. Um, have had a much uh, they've become a much bigger thing than mm. the industry ever expected, and it's going on far far longer than we ever expected. But there's a there's a uh, I was reading over the weekend. There's a double edged aspect to this mm. in that. Um, I, I think I've got this number correct, and forgive me if I haven't because I read it over the weekend, that 17,000 jobs have been lost in the motion picture Goodness industry me. during this strike. Mm. Which, so whilst at the end of it, some people may come out with better pay and better conditions, uh, at least 17,000 uh, people have lost their jobs. And this is a time, of course, when America's economy is actually booming in the sense that they're adding jobs all yes. the time. Because there's a real growth in, in, in you know, many mm. industries over there, construction, um, leisure and so on. Um, so the, the, the joblessness for the motion picture and uh, and the sound industries um really do like highlight the effect of the of the writers guild and the sag mm. i mean it's been going on since may so um you know it's a that's a long old strike but um yeah on top absolutely of this, it, agreed yeah in terms of television program makers they want to appeal to whom now it's certainly mm. not anyone with an interest in the arts the wider world or any of us who enjoy learning new information about the world around us any show that is cast now that for example wants to show us let's say the beautiful churches of italy or um let me think of something else the extraordinary landscape of of iceland that show now can't take on an expert a professor with great knowledge mm. instead the presenter must be a uh, i know television chef or someone from a soap yes. opera who can barely often put one word in front of the other. Right. And that person must, in every episode as well, this is the, the new thing of the last decade or so, they have to have a go at doing something, like shearing a sheep or milking a goat, even though it's a really serious subject about the great Italian Renaissance art or something. They've got to, they've got to be shown, uh, I don't know, putting stones on a wall in that Icelandic landscape. I was talking to. Everything these days, Jules, is aimed at Mrs. Brown's boy's audience. 
Um, you know, I really don't want to agree with you, but I'm finding it really hard not to. I must say it's really frustrating that I watch, you know, obviously, I think, as, as you know, previously I've talked on podcasts, I really like BBC Four. Um, mm. It's been reduced to an archive channel now, but there's still a lot on it, which I've enjoyed watching. But one thing that I have noticed is, is, and I think we spoke about this the other week when I was talking about film interviews on archive kind of shows and how mm. we talked about the demise of Michael Parkinson and how there yes. seems to be much more serious interview conversations that took place in the past. And, you know, a lot of these documentaries, serious, interesting documentaries, um, the arena strand, which doesn't seem to exist anymore, I would say. Um, and we talked about this previously, how it just seems to be sort of quietly retired. They post, they they put these previous sort of documentaries up on on um, the Storyville strand is still good actually. I will give them that. But they still put they put up these documentaries on BBC Four, and it's all archive, and it's all all the serious, interesting stuff that I like to watch. Brilliant film about Seamus Heaney that gets repeated from from time to time that has no inane voiceover that, you know, as you say, doesn't have, you know, someone from Countryfile going around Ireland to show us the real Seamus Heaney. That is a seriously made documentary with archive footage on it that tells you something interesting. This stuff is we're we're watching old stuff. There is not this kind of new stuff in the pipeline. Sky Arts are, are, are trying, I think. But even then... I, you know, I, I try and watch things on there. And sometimes we, they have sort of live music things that are really good. They have some new films that are made. There was a really good one called Teenage Superstars about indie music. Fairly recent. It was really great. They do make some good films. They made a Nightingale's film, the King Rocker film with, with Stuart Lee. It was great as well. But increasingly, even on there... You, you go to watch a documentary about, say, Marvin Gaye, and it's the same four talking heads reading things <laughs> off Wikipedia. You know, it's it's really frustrating. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Sky Arts has been the home of uh, the South Bank show for the last 11, 12 years. That hasn't even been late night on ITV anymore. Melvin Bragg, Sir Melvin Bragg, bless him, the man that is referred to by the, the erstwhile Fortunately podcast hosted by Glover and Garvey. They always used to refer to him as Mel B, which used to make me laugh every single time. <laughs> <laughs> Mel B is um, is no longer going to be hosting the um, the South Bank show. It's, as as Tim as Ben Lawrence says in the ta- in the Telegraph, it's inevitable. He's eighty three. It was inevitable he was going to have to step down at some point in time. That's fine. He's still doing in our time on uh, on uh, Radio Four, as Jake Yap once put it in his excellent parody of Radio Four in Four Minutes, which I would recommend you dig out by the mm. way. Extremely funny. It's a few years old now. It's very funny. It won't in our time. The program that just starts. So I'm always quite a fan of Melvin Bragg and his programs that just start. Uh, I'm sorry, no longer the South Bank Road show, but as Ben says, he says you have to give it up at some point. While Sky Arts, the program's home for the past 11 years, is not confirmed whether it will continue without him. Such an outcome feels unlikely. Um, he says it's partly due to the fact that, that Melvin Bragg is very talented, actually, insightful and high-minded but accessible in his profiles, and they feel hard to re- replace. I've never quite bought, oh, your man that does imagine Yentob on BBC One. Mm. I've never quite bought that as a serious thing. I must, yes, quite. But it's also, he says his departure comes at a time where arts programming and a serious TV more generally is disappearing from our screens. It always feels like it will be the less well-off that will suffer. This chap's very right. And, you know, it's it's all very well romanticising the good old days, etc. And perhaps it wasn't. And yes, more people go to university than ever before. So perhaps you could argue that the population at large is better educated. Having said that, I do remember the days when daytime TV on BBC One, BBC Two and Channel Four wouldn't be industry gardening programmes, you know, antiques programmes, bargain hunt, flog it, all that kind of stuff. They'd be, they well, so Channel 4 had a school strand that was very, very successful mm. and used by a lot of schools. I grew up watching that stuff, as mm. I did with BBC as well. And the endless sort of dramas for kids. My generation will remember things like Badger Girl, Fairground, Geordie Race, all that kind of stuff that was sort of, it was dramas that it would be on every week and a television would literally be wheeled in and you'd watch the 15 minute part and through the dragon's eye I was obsessed with as a child on look and read on BBC two and even if it wasn't that there used to be a lot of open university documentaries that would be shown either during the day on BBC two so you could switch it on and see some quite weighty Mm -hmm. things being discussed or and I think this is where 
without you know sort of painting which of the good old days it used to be on during the night on bbc2 and i've heard stories of you know people that i know shift workers that would be coming in at strange times <laughs> that would watch that would watch this stuff you know mm. people that come in at three o'clock in the morning and watch like a documentary on i don't know permafrost or something made by the open university designed for degrees and shown on television and i i agree i think it's saddening that that doesn't happen now i agree with the point that very few serious documentaries feel like they're being made indeed and you know you've reminded me there when you 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 spoke Mm. about coming across heavyweight programs um it's reminded me i remember when i was very young learning so much but very enjoyably from a series called civilization yes in the historian in, in this the, the historian Kenneth Clark yes. the MP Alan Clark's father mm. um Kenneth Clark he would simply stand in front of something and tell you about it and it all worked brilliantly there was no pulsing graphics nobody from country mm. file you just listened and learned and Absolutely. You know, if they made that today they would contract Amanda Holden and Tim Lovejoy well, to present it you know Absolutely. And also another point I would make, and actually, yes. So they made Civilization a little while ago with Mary really? Beard, I think. Yes, I think this is right. I'm going to check. I don't mind Mary Beard I'm doing not... it. She's, well, uh, you a, say yeah, this, Letty. I was rather. Yes, she mm. is. And she's excellent. And I, I approve of her very much. However... I, so she did um, a documentary series called Civilization that was presented by her. Um, she did this thing on BBC One. Now, I one thing that rather, and, and I don't necessarily blame Mary Beard for this. So I'd seen Mary mm-hmm. Beard on BBC Four presenting documentaries. I thought she was brilliant. I'd seen her. I like Lucy Worsley very much. She does things, and, you know, and I've seen several presenters, uh, Ramirez, Alice Roberts, be very good. So I'd seen Mary Beard on that. And then mm. I thought that was quite good. I thought she was excellent, very weighty, very thoughtful. Mm. And so I do something on BBC Two that I thought was not quite as good, but was still pretty good. I then saw her on primetime BBC One some time mm. ago presenting a civilizations type thing. And I was really shocked, Sertie, at oh. how dumbed down she was oh, compared no. to how I'd seen her on BBC Four. And I don't no. blame her for this. I suspect no. she and the producers were very heavily lent on. But this idea, actually, and in contrast, Lucy Worsley did an hour and a half film, a one-off, which is unusual for her, I think. Mm. It was shown on primetime BBC One from nine to half ten on suffragettes. And I think it was the best thing she's ever done, actually, because I'm a big fan of her. But I, I see some of the Christian occasion that she constantly dressed up all the time. She did a bit of dressing up in this, but it was a very serious piece of work compared to some of the slightly lighter stuff. And there is, I think there is no shame in making history and things accessible to people. Mm. And it's always a fine line. I think the chat, the, uh, the BBC series, um, Horrible Histories for Kids, is genuinely a, such a gem. I would recommend that to adults as well as kids because they do these incredible songs the people that write them they cast history figures in kind of (laughs) modern day pop stars there's a lovely version of changes by david bowie that never quite breaks into changes they find seem to find a way of parodying songs without quite ripping them off which i think the producers are very pleased with they had charles darwin talking about evolution to the tune of something that was clearly changes he did talk about the church of england at one point which i thought was very good that queen mary doing a kate bush style wuthering heights and um, they did have a brilliant version of they did a whole special on george the third where uh, they did instead of park life they did court life to describe the uh described the uh, they had people opening parasols in the and it was, it was genuinely brilliant and i don't have an issue with stuff being made accessible but i was disappointed that lucy worsley managed to do something that was still very really quite serious about suffragettes on bbc one prime time and in the same slot i noticed the difference in how mary beard ran a program and and the sort of things she was told to say and you know how it was presented compared to bbc four and it did feel like dumbing down and i never like I know I usually am slightly anti the argument that things are dumbing down because mm. I always feel that that is a bit of a classist argument and that, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, stuff dies because it isn't accessible. I isn't very good. It's incomprehensible. It's dense. It's it's not written. It's written with contempt for its audience and written because the person that writes it, Sam Oxbridge Don, thinks they're the greatest thing ever. And they haven't been in a in a public thoroughfare for 15 years. I, you know, I have some 
sympathy mm. with the idea that lots of this dense stuff dies because it isn't very good. But like you say, stuff like civilization, stuff like the world at war that's really stood the mm. test over time. We were showing that at school. I know people that, you know, A-level people that still watch it now that really mm. enjoy it Excellent. just because it's done with a straight bat as well. So mm. even this year's TikTok generation sit and watch it and get stuff from it. I, I do I do have an issue. I have an issue with, you know, stuff being inaccessible and i've always had an issue with that having said that i really have an issue with stuff being dumbed down and i really have an issue with the lack of talking about serious things not everything could you know i get the repair shop is very heartwarming what but you know now we have to deal with six different versions of it in daytime tv i, I feel that is a place for everything and yes the, the sort of lack of seriousness and the lack of encouraging critical thinking, especially in an age where we're talking about, you know, we were listening to a shocking kind of thing about AI scams this morning on, on the Guardian podcast. You know, in an era where we talk about fake news and deep fakes and AI and we're in a really we're coming into a really dangerous period. You know, we've already had it with Trump and co and Fox. You know, we need our critical thinking skills more than ever. And it worries me that that this this kind of strand is missing from television at the moment which has always been really democratic if you can afford a tv license and a, you know a basic model of tv anyone can watch tv absolutely you don't have to cast davina mccall in everything um no i mean I, I have some level of time for her but equally yes <laughs> it's all right for mary beard to do something and it's all right for mary beard to do something in the style that mary beard does rather than mm. some sort of sub one show thing Thanks very much for listening this week. Good to have you along. I, as always, agree with Sir T about everything. Now, if you want to hear an example of top-level presentation, mm-hmm. you need to tune into Juliet's radio shows. That is too kind, Sir Terence. Also, your acting skills remain top-notch. Well done. Uh, yes, I am. I do be sailing seven to nine p.m. Sunday evenings. Noiseboxradio.com. Also, my show Lost for Words has returned, which is uh, was very nice to be able to do that on Thursday. That's on from 8 to 9 p.m. on Thursday evenings on noiseboxradio.com as well. Instrumentals of all and no kind, or no genres, and uh, smooth sailing. That's what it says on the tin, really. M-O-R, A-O-R, Yacht Rock, classic pop. Stuff that's good fun, but, you know, but equally, it's good quality, but equally not too sort of taxing on a Sunday evening. To play us out, Juliet, you've chosen a lovely return to 1966 and an album called Soul Español. Indeed. And, you know, this would not be out of place on Lost for Words. Um, I'm a big fan of Oscar Peterson. I love his music and always have done. Um, we were away this weekend, like you referenced at the start of the podcast, <laughs> play, staying somewhere, which not saying it was a factor in us staying there, but it had an extremely good sound system, a Bose sound system with a Sony, Sony uh, turntable. So I took a lot of records. They also had some excellent records right there, by the way. We took our own records working on the basis that they said they had 100 records and I thought they'd all be charity shop stuff. I thought they'd all be by Mantovani, said he. <laughs> Actually, we the first two records that we pulled out were um, Can't Buy Thrill by Steely Dan oh. and Purple Rain by Mr. P. Rinz. Oh. So actually... Oh. We could happily, Simon and Garfunkel, they had some brilliant <sighs> stuff there. So we could, thank you to our hosts, Alison and, and Andy in uh, in Wadhurst, who were excellent. We could happily have lived off those. But uh, we did live off the records that I took. And I brought this album with me, Sol Espanol. It has a really excellent sleeve note on the back as well, which I don't have to hand, but it's very funny. It classifies the different types of Oscar Peterson fans, which is very amusing. I recommend you look it up. This is a bit of a departure for him and for me, and that it doesn't have the original trio that I love so much on it. So once I'd stopped vent, uh, sort of uh, sort of howling and breathing heavily and ventilating into a brown paper bag, I did, was persuaded to put it on and I enjoyed it very much. I always love Oscar's work. Uh, a lovely Latin jazz album, which is a bit of a departure for him, I would say. And I love this. Um, many people are sort of familiar with um, the Sergio Mendes version, but I like this very much. This is Oscar Peterson and, and uh, Mash Canada.
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs> <laughs>